15. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can take one from the pew in front of you and uh, find Romans uh, 15. That would be uh, excellent. I don't know what page it's on. John read from Philippians 2. That was on 1179, so it's to the left of that. So 1050, somewhere around there probably. Anyway, Romans 15. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything was written in the past, that was written in the past, was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Six weeks ago, I walked into the PennDOT Licensing Center on Roarstown Road to renew my driver's license. Mine expired at the end of June, and I was there. I was ready with my birth certificate and my proof of residency to get a new real ID, certified Pennsylvania driver's license. Uh, So when I walked in, I noted that the crowd there was rather large, and I got my number, A347. They have a cryptic numbering system at PennDOT. Alan Turing designed it, I'm sure, himself. Uh, So uh, there was no place to sit. It was fine. I stood along the wall. I had a book with me to read. It was great. I should have brought multiple volumes. (laughs) I was there for two and a half hours. Um, You can observe a lot about people when you're stuck in a room with them for two and a half hours. We were, by and large, an unhappy group of people. Um... Not friends at all. We were not friends. No one spoke. Actually, there were uh, two groups of people that would speak. There were older women who were sitting next to younger women who had brought their toddlers for the two-and-a-half wait. And the older women said something like, I am so sorry. On behalf of the state of Pennsylvania, I am so sorry. And then the other group of people that would speak were newbies. Newbies who would come in, and they'd sit down, and they'd turn to the person sitting next to them. How long have you been here? Two hours. Oh. When my number was finally called, I uh, walked up to the desk, turned in my paperwork, and only to find out that the state of New York, the land of my birth, issues two different types of birth certificates, both sealed and authorized and notarized. 
and the state of Pennsylvania only recognizes one of them as a legitimate form of identification. Guess which one I had with me? (laughs) So I waited two and a half hours, and I left empty-handed, frustrated, and grouchy. Now, two weeks after that, I did eventually get a driver's license. Two weeks after that, though, I drove into the parking lot of the Manor Township Park on Charlestown Road. I was there for the Divini Family Reunion. It was smaller this year than it usually is. Uh, the Tennessee Divinis and the Western New York Divinis couldn't come, and only three of the Florida Divinis uh, were there. But, but we met. It was a Saturday. Actually, we met uh, for the official picnic reunion on Saturday. We had all had dinner before Friday night, uh, but this is the official reunion. And these are the people with whom I shared DNA, which means we all should have been watching our cholesterol a little bit better at the picnic. Uh, We have a shared family history, this group of people and I. We have the same uh, list of joys and sorrows. We have collective collective memories. We've been to the same birthday parties. We've been to the same Christmas dinners. We sit in the same rows at weddings, and we sit in the same rows at funerals. I remember two hand-touched football games with these people and jokes about how miserably we sing when it comes to cake and candles. We are not the Von Trapps. I remember once, I must have been seven or eight years old, we were at my grandmother's house for the annual carnival in Nunday, New York. Nunday is the town where my dad and his brothers and sister grew up. Nunday, New York has an annual carnival. You'll love it. They call it the Nunday Fun Days. So we were all there. We were getting ready to watch the parade. We had dinner at Grandma's house before. And my cousin, uh, she was a teenager, had somehow struck up a friendship with one of the neighbor boys of my grandmother. And he had asked her out on a date. So she was going to eat dinner at our house and then go on this date with this young man. And she was very particular as food was being passed that she not eat anything. And I mean absolutely nothing that had raw onions in it. Who wants to go on a date with halitosis? What would happen at your family dinner if there was a teenage girl who was interested in not eating any onions as the food was passed? My uncles and my cousins, they gave her the business. They teased her and laughed at her and poked fun at her. I have that memory with this group of people that I met with on that Saturday a few weeks ago at the Manor Township Park. We meet together on the foundation of our shared history, our shared lives. It means something for us to be face-to-face. Now, I have two questions to ask you this morning. The first one is easy, almost insultingly easy, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And the second question is not so easy. In fact, to answer the second question, we need help from the Apostle Paul in Romans 15. Here's the first question, the easy one. Which event would you rather attend? A two and a half hour sit-in at PennDOT or a family reunion? Well, I know some of you don't like your families. You're thinking about PennDOT, right? That's sounding good. Two and a half hours by myself with a book? Sure, sign me up. Okay, but for the rest of us, <laughs> this has backfired already, I can see. <laughs> the less dysfunctional among us, the answer we want to give to that question is the family reunion. That's the answer we want to give. Well, here's the harder question. How do we make sure that the atmosphere of our church is more like a family reunion than the crowd in the waiting room of PennDOT? That's what we want our church to be like, right? 
We want it to be a gathering of people who are united together with a shared identity, who have walked with one another down long roads of joy and sorrow. We want to be friends, not merely co-sufferers. Now, how is that going to happen? That's one of Paul's concerns as he brings to a close in Romans chapter 15 a discussion that he started way back in chapter 14 about the relationship that, between those he calls the weak and the strong. Now, before we set our uh, feet in the starting blocks of chapter 15, let's spend a few minutes remembering where we have been so far, how we got here. This summer, we, our focus has been on what the Bible teaches about your conscience. Your conscience is a gift from God. It's an inner witness that testifies to you about whether or not you are living up to your standards. We actually have two different elements at play going on here. We have your convictions, what you believe about right and wrong, and your conscience, that inner witness that testifies to you about whether or not you're living up to that right and wrong. Your conscience is a bit like a thermometer. It measures the temperature of your conduct, and it's a gift from God. In light of our accountability to him, God has given us a conscience, this inner witness. It's supposed to push you away from violating your standards and toward doing what you believe is right. Now, unfortunately, like everything about you, your conscience has been polluted by sin. We're, we're fallen people. Our convictions don't align with what God has said is right and wrong. And our consciences are sometimes unreliable witnesses. One of the reasons that we give ourselves as a congregation of believers over to reading the Bible is because we want to bring our convictions into conformity with God's own. We want to sharpen our consciences so that they push us in the right direction, following God faithfully. Now we spent most of the time, much of the time this summer in Romans 14, thinking together about Paul's counsel to us when our consciences as believers don't agree. We have certain convictions together in common that we have to hold in order to worship together with one another. Central to them, of course, is the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We have this common confession about Jesus Christ. But we don't have a common confession about other things. Uh, we use the term, and Christians have used the term for hundreds of years, the term adiaphora, to describe those things. Things the Bible doesn't teach directly and repeatedly. Things the scriptures neither prohibit nor command. And the first great task of any group of believers is to be able to identify those issues that are adiaphora. We had a family argument about this last weekend about adiaphora issues. My daughters in particular are positive that there is a certain activity, which I shall not name here, that is essential. It is central for Christian discipleship, and I'm not so sure about that. And I repeatedly said to them, where in the Bible is that taught? Where is the Bible that commanded or even touched on? Give me a verse. Give me a verse. They would have nothing to do with it. It was like arguing with an old fundamentalist. Now listen, we love fundamentalists. Uh, we are related to fundamentalists, but sometimes they, sometimes we, struggle to identify adiaphora issues. Actually, this doesn't apply to my daughters, but the only thing worse than arguing with an old fundamentalist is arguing with a young fundamentalist. 
The old fundamentalists told you to burn your rock and roll records and prohibit you from dancing and using tobacco products and drinking alcohol. But new fundamentalists are pretty sure that somewhere in the Bible you can't use plastic straws. <laughs> and that you have to drink fair trade coffee. And if you don't recycle, you're probably not going to heaven. All right? So we have to be able to identify these adiaphora issues. Albert Moeller calls this the work of theological triage. In Romans 14, remember the issues? Eating meat, drinking wine, observing special days. Those are the adiaphora issues there. At the same time, we have to recognize that you can do real spiritual harm to someone. Be careful about encouraging someone to violate their conscience. Paul writes here about spiritual destruction. If you have freedom in your conscience to engage in some sort of behavior, uh, meat eating, don't encourage non-meat eaters to eat in violation of their conscience. We spent time working through how Paul encourages those of the strong, that is those who have free consciences, to uh, love those with tighter consciences, those he calls the weak. Now, as we come to chapter 15 today, Paul finishes his appeal and he sets down for us his primary concern. What is he primarily concerned about in Romans chapter 15? The unity of the church. Actually, he does not want the Roman brothers and sisters to be united for unity's sake alone. He wants them to be united together so that they can together, as it says in verse 6, with one mind and one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is... He's trying to tune their public worship. And and he's turning on the knobs of their conscience to try to tune their public worship so that they can sing sweetly to God in heaven, glorifying his name. Now, these are rich paragraphs that we just read in chapter 15. Uh, We started in chapter 14 talking about vegetables and meat, and now we end in chapter 15 with the glory of God and his eternal plans that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. Big paragraphs. Maybe you notice as we were reading them how similar they are. Did you see that? So think with me about chapters one through, or verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 13. Both of them begin with a command. So verse, uh, chapter uh, 15, verse 1 says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And then verse 7, here's the second paragraph, begins with a command to accept one another just as Christ accepted you. So they both begin with a command. They both move on to an example or a reason, the rationale for why you should obey the command. Verse 2, actually verse 3 says, here's the uh, example, the reason, for even Christ did not please himself. And then verse 7 again, the command, accept one another, then the reason, just as Christ accepted you. So, both paragraphs, there's a command, there's a reason why you should obey the command, and then third, they both end, the paragraphs end with a prayer, a wish. Verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Doesn't that sound like Philippians 2? And then verse 13, here's the, the prayer at the end, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So there's a lot of similarities between these two paragraphs. And and what he's writing here is this is what we're after, verse 13, that you would be filled with joy and peace as you trust in him. So we want to be a congregation that's filled with hope under the banner of the Lord Jesus, 
filled with hope, marked by joy and peace, infused by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're after. That's a family reunion. It's not a PennDOT waiting room. We don't want little things like meat and vegetables and special days and drinking wine to divide us. We'll not all agree about those things, but we have a larger, an infinitely larger vision before us. How do we, fundamentalists, both young and old, get there? This is my last crack at it this morning as we finish this uh, passage of Scripture. Here's how I want to unfold the text this morning. I'm not sure what that is, and Kirk isn't sure what that is. It's this? Should I just turn it off? Okay. Uh, let's see. We're after, we're after creating this atmosphere of glory to God in the midst of our differences. That's what we're after. And what I want to do is I want to take each paragraph at a time. We're just going to very simply look at the command. Then we're going to consider Paul's rationale as we move uh, toward his prayer for the church. We're just going to walk very simply through the text. So we're going to start in the first paragraph, verses 1 through 6. Here's the command. It's specifically for the strong. He says, bear with one another. Basically, bear with one another. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Remember, the context is about different consciences. So there are brothers and sisters in the church who are not as strong, not as free as you are, the strong. And Paul says, bear with their failings. In other words, carry them. And the opposite of bearing with them is pleasing yourself. Remember, Paul says in these chapters, you have rights. As a follower of Jesus, your strong conscience, conscience, you have rights. You have rights. You have the freedom to do certain things. But your behavior is not to be determined by your rights, but by what's beneficial for your brothers and sisters in Christ. The phrase, bear with, is important. You could translate it, carry, carry. And it shows up in Galatians 6 too. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You see, in a certain sense, a tighter conscience is a burden. It adds responsibilities and restrictions to a person's life. If you don't carry, if you don't have those burdens yourself, use the freedom that you do have to help your weaker brothers and sisters carry their burdens. Every follower of Jesus at some point in time needs this sort of help. And when it comes to matters of conscience, you who are strong, help the weak carry their burdens. Help them carry their consciences. Consider with me how anti-Darwinian this message is. Charles Darwin, of course, his most famous idea, survival of the fittest. The strong survive and the pass on their strengths, and the weak die. In human history, it's the strong who overcome the weak and force the weak to provide for them. I, someone might say, I am strong, you are weak, go into my fields, plant my crops, and bring me my food. And if there's any left over, I'll let you have some. That's how the strong and weak work, but not in the church of Christ. In fact, in the church of Christ, the strong use their strength to carry the burdens of others. Now why? Why do we do that? Here's the reason behind Paul's commands. Even Christ did not please himself. We're following the example of Christ Jesus himself. Verse 3, even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you 
have fallen on me. Now this verse demands a great deal of reflection. Christ is our Savior. He's our coming King. Here Paul says he is our example. But Paul, it's odd, he doesn't appeal here to an example from Christ's life. Wouldn't that have made sense in this context? You know, Christ did not please himself. And then he says, do you remember that time that he had just learned that John the Baptist was dead and his disciples had been out on a ministry, adventure, uh, ministry trip and, and he was really tired and they were all retired and he wanted to get away with them for a little bit to do some R&R and they were going to reflect on their trip and uh, their ministry. And, and, and just as he was leaving to, to go away with them, this huge crowd came. And you know, remember what Jesus did? He, he taught them. He healed them. He, and then at the end of the day when everybody was hungry and cranky, he fed them all. 5,000 of them, plus women and children. Christ did not please himself. Would that story fit in here? You, you could do that. He, he could have done that. Paul could, Paul could have, um, he could have spoken about how the Lord Jesus himself came to earth as a Jew, and as a faithful Jew, he followed all of the restrictions of the, of the Old Testament law. He could have talked about that. I mean, he, it was through him that the Father had created pigs, and as a creator, he would be well familiar with how tasty ham is. Don't you think as creator he would have the right to eat bacon? He didn't. If he had come as a Roman, he could have eaten bacon, but he came to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law of Moses. He did not please himself. Paul could have made that point. He could have made the point that way. But instead he quotes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David where David expresses his loyalty to God in the midst of his suffering. And he says, and Paul puts these words in his mouth, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. What a strange way to talk about not pleasing yourself, bearing insults. It's as if, as if, if Jesus is saying, Father, people are insulting you. Who's doing that? That's a bad idea. Father, people are insulting you. As an expression of my faithfulness to you, I am bearing those insults. The insults that people usually have for you are falling on me because I am, I am faithful to you. I'm bearing those insults. It's a strange way to talk about not pleasing yourself, isn't it? I think you should take this word insulted and consider it very carefully. Here's why. In the last couple of months, uh, some well-known followers of Jesus, Christians with a decent amount of influence, have publicly left the faith. Some of you have read about this, heard about this, talked about it already. For others of you, this might be news. One of them, of course, was a man by the name of Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris's family was prominent in the homeschool movement in the 1990s. He wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Kind of set the direction of the uh, uh, movement of courting in uh, the evangelical world. Uh, he wrote several books. He spoke at a lot of conferences and leadership events. Ten or twelve years ago, a group of men from Grace went to Hershey to a conference. Joshua Harris was the uh, main speaker at that event. We sat and heard him. Um, and one week this summer, he announced that he and his wife were divorcing. And the next week, he announced that he, and his, hey, he was leaving the faith. He's no longer a Christian. 
A couple weeks later, uh, a songwriter, worship leader named Marty Sampson announced he's in the process of losing his faith. He hasn't completely renounced it. He clarified that. But he's really struggling. I didn't recognize the name Marty Sampson. You might not either, but we sing one of his songs in our worship services. Um, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. That song. Marty Sampson wrote that song. Uh, he's struggling. Now, I don't know uh, either of these men. I'm sure there are dozens of things going on in their minds. But David French, David French is a Christian. He's a National Review columnist. He said something helpful. He, he carefully read the things that Joshua Harris and Marty Sampson wrote about their faith. And he wondered about the role that cultural pressure played on them. Listen to what David French wrote. As our culture changes secularizes and grows less tolerant of Christian orthodoxy, I'm noticing a pattern in many of the people who fall away, he says. Again, only Samson knows his heart. They're retreating from faith, not because they're ignorant of its key tenets and lack the necessary intellectual theological depth, so they're not leaving because they don't know Christianity, but rather, he says, because the adversity of adherence to increasingly countercultural doctrine grows too great. Put another way, the failure of the church isn't so much of teaching, but fortification, of building the moral courage and resolve to live your faith in the face of cultural headwinds. In my travels around the country, one thing has become crystal clear to me. Christians are not prepared for the social consequences of the profound cultural shifts especially in more secular parts of the nation. They're afraid to say what they believe, not because they face the kind of persecution that Christians face overseas, but because they're simply not prepared for any meaningful adverse consequences in their careers or with their peers. So some of us have this idea that if, if we can just say what the Bible teaches about, say, homosexuality, if we can just say it clearly and carefully enough, people in the lunchroom or the cafeteria or your coworkers, they might think you're quaint, but they won't say that you're evil. They won't hate you. They won't insult you. They'll think you're a little odd, but, but they won't hate you. And, and we think, sometimes this is true, some Christians are treated poorly by the culture because they're just obnoxious in their beliefs. And they say things obnoxiously. You know people like that, right? You have a Facebook account. You know Christians who say things obnoxiously, right? So the, the thing is, if, if but, but I'm going to say things nicely. I'm going to be nuanced, and I'm going to be gentle, and I'm going to be compassionate. And if I'm nuanced enough and gentle enough and compassionate enough, people will be nice to me. They won't insult me. But brothers and sisters, how much careful, more careful do you think you can be than the Lord Jesus himself? There's no escaping it. Don't be unnecessarily offensive. There's no need for that. But, but you can be as careful and as well stated as you want. There are insults to fall. And this is what Paul highlights when he talks about Christ as a model of a person who did not please himself. The insults that were directed to you have fallen on me. It is costly, it is costly to carry the burden of loving your neighbor. So where do we get the strength to do this? Verse 4, Paul has kind of a parenthetical comment here. He's just quoted from Psalm 69 and then in verse 4 he says, 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Suffering people who are living to please others and not themselves need hope. Where do we get hope? From the scriptures. Paul mentions two things here. Actually, he mentions endurance and encouragement. The the grammar, the bones of the text, is a a little difficult to piece together. I think the NIV translation is essentially uh, correct. We need endurance. It's taught in the scriptures. And we need encouragement. It's provided by the scriptures. Think with me for en- about endurance for a minute. If you're going to serve others and really help them, it requires endurance. Be in it for the long haul. Last weekend, we visited some friends in western New York. Uh, one of them is a man. He's 92 years old. He's the founder of the camp where Kathy and I met. He's 92. He preached the Sunday morning message to us all with his uh, Bible, and he didn't have any reading glasses, which was amazing to me. But anyway, 92 years old preaching. And whenever I see him, which is about once a year, he says to me, how's the church going? How's the church going, Joel? So I said to him, I said, it's going really well. Things are going fine. And then I said, I've been there about 20 years. I say that to people because I like to see the shock come across their face. They're very confused. The question that comes into their mind is, who is crazy? You or the church? Which, what's going on that this has happened? This is strange. Then it occurs to me, too, when I say that, though, that I rank about 12th or 13th in the church when it comes to longevity of ministry. I get paid to do this. Some of you have been serving for a long time for free. In fact, it costs you a lot. You've been teaching Sunday school for well over 20 years, and you've been on Saturday night trips to the grocery store to get goldfish for snacks dozens of times. Or you've been involved in music ministry for 27 years, or ushering for 33 years, or working with the missions committee for a long time, or serving in the nursery for decades. Some of you have a particular ministry of encouragement, and the official programs of the church have come and gone, but you've just stuck at it. This is what you do, because God has called you to this work, and you're encouraging people. I think I'm about 12th or 13th in the church in list of ministry longevity. If, if this was the old day of Sunday school pins, some of you have really long ones. If you're going to help people, you're going to really help them really carry burdens be ready because it takes endurance it takes long and hard work where does endurance come from it's taught by the scriptures and the bible encourages us too here's another reason we read it but it also those things are also gifts verse 5 uses the same words if this were a class on the bible we would park here a long time because Look, he says that God gives the same thing that the scriptures teach and provide. There's a parallel between God himself and what the scriptures do because they're his word. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other. It's a gift from God. God gives to us what the scriptures teach and provide. Your endurance is a sign of the grace of God in your life. Can you think of a way that this verse has manifested itself? Maybe you're thinking about whether or not it's time to sign up for another year. Should I continue in this? Am I going to be at it again? And then you read something in the scriptures. Maybe it's happening right now this morning. You read something in the scriptures and God through his book gives you the endurance 
and the encouragement you need to continue. You continue because by the grace of God you have a vision of what could happen that is more important to you than any of the reasons you have to quit. You can make a list of reasons you have to quit and and they don't compare to this vision that Paul writes about this prayer that he has in verse 5. This vision, a united church that brings glory to God. Verse 6, so that... With one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we carry the burden of the consciences of the weak, those who are weak in faith. Why you endure when you turn to scriptures for the encouragement you need, because this is where what God does. What does God do through the enduring and encouraged people that are his? He forms them into united communities that together glorify God. You might not think about this, but you should. You should think about this. I wonder if it's ever occurred to you that when we meet together on Sunday mornings and we sing together or we pray together or um, uh, when we affirm together that Jesus is Lord, that this is the fruit of God's blessing of the work that you have done to please your neighbor. Think about this. As you sit in the pew somewhere and you see some young kid. He's 25. He's not a young kid. But to you, he's a young kid. And you think back to the time that you taught him in Sunday school. He was a rascal. But you were there, and you stuck with it, and you endured after. He's 25 years old, and he's standing in the pews, and he's singing, All hail to the Lord Jesus. Through God, through the endurance and encouragement he provides to his people forms them into communities so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is tuning our worship here when he's talking to us about our consciences. It's a vision that will keep you enduring, won't it? Now, clearly we have to move through the second paragraph here with a bit more speed. We can do it. The pattern in verses 7 through 13 is the same as the pattern in verses 1 through 7. Verse 7 is the command, accept one another. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So... um, He had been speaking to the strong, that was his emphasis. Now he's just talking to us all, all of us. He's used this command several times, accept one another. Um, uh, Identify the adiaphora, be able to identify the adiaphora, but then accept one another despite your different convictions about these things. Welcome them, embrace them, love one another. Again, why do we do that? Why? Because we have another example, just as Christ accepted you. And then Paul writes this verse, oh my goodness, verse 8 and 9. It's a verse that helps us unfold the entire story of the Bible. There's so much here. Look at it. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is a packed sentence. So we'll unpack it in historical order. We'll go historical order. Way back in the beginning, 
in the beginning of the Bible, God made promises to the patriarchs. He made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He promised them a land of their own. He promised them descendants. He promised to bless them. He promised that through them he was going to bless the whole world. This is the promise that God has made. And in fulfillment of that promise that God made a long time ago, Jesus was born as a descendant of those patriarchs. Abraham was his great, 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 great grandfather. And, and he was a servant of the patriarchs in that he, and I already talked about this, lived out, he fulfilled uh, every bit of the commands that God had given to Abraham's descendants in the law of Moses. Jesus came as a Jew and, and he fulfilled the law of Moses. And it is through this promise keeping of the Lord Jesus that God fulfills the promise made to Abraham to provide blessing for the whole world. Now that is my attempt to explain what he says when he says, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truthful promise so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Whew. Paul shows how this was part of the plan from the beginning by, by quoting these verses, uh, two from the Psalms, one from the prophets, one from the book of Moses, that connect Gentiles and worship. It was always part of God's plan that Jews and Gentiles would be together in this one body, the church, and that together we would be a worshiping community. Paul's bringing themes that have pervaded the book of Romans together here at the end. Remember Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then in, uh, he spends three chapters in the middle of Romans talking about this mystery of God's wonderful plan to bring salvation to people who are both Jews and Gentiles. And here's the culmination. And each of these uh, quotations that he makes here deserves more careful analysis. But, but you can appreciate this just for a moment. The, the first one. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. So this is a quote from uh, Psalm 18. And in Psalm 18, David is writing about, King David is writing about how God had enabled him to defeat the nations on the battlefield. He was God's mighty warrior, and he beat the, uh, the nations. He defeated them. Look at Psalm 18, verse 47. He is the God who avenges me, who subdues nations under me, who saved me from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man you rescued me. And there, then he says, therefore I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. David went to war with the nations and he conquered them. And his expectation is that in the wake of his massive victory, all the nations in honor of his God would sing praises. David has defeated us. Praise be to the God of David. Praise the God of David because he has clearly stronger than our gods because he has defeated us. Now, Paul takes those words and he puts them in Jesus' mouth. What has the Lord Jesus conquered? Well, when he returns, he's going to be visibly, clearly king of the world. That's, that's true. But, but now, what has he conquered? On the cross, he conquered sin and death. Over us all stands this sentence of death because of our sin, our rebellion against God. 
our failure to live up to his standards. But Jesus paid for our sins, died in our place, and rose again. He emerged victoriously from the tomb so that we could say together, Great is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. He, the Lord Jesus, arises from the root of Jesse. He's a descendant of David. And in him, we all have hope. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is setting before you this wonderful truth in this passage. There's hope to be found. There's forgiveness to be had. There's life to be owned, available for all people, regardless of your creed and your national origin and your history. It's available to all who turn to him and believe. Uh, As a church, we're pretty ordinary people. But we believe this extraordinary truth. Would you join us in confessing it together? In light of all he has done, Paul says to the church, will you not accept one another despite your differences and convictions about these second and third and fourth order issues? Now we should say this at this point in time. It has to be said. It is God's intention that his church be a multi-ethnic community. They should genuinely reflect the neighborhoods in which they are. We live in Manor Township. It's not dramatically, ethnically diverse. It's more diverse than our church is. Hmm. If God himself, through his son, can break down the barriers separating Jew and Gentile, can he not in his own church create a community that crosses racial and ethnic barriers? I imagine it is... It will be about as hard a work for us as it was uh, in our practice as it was for the Jews and Gentiles in first century Rome. Why should we do that? Because it's part of the plan of God that was accomplished through the Lord Jesus. Under his lordship, there's this closing prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope upon hope upon hope upon hope. You need that to endure. This is a passage with massive cosmic roots. It almost seems silly to remember where we came from. Do you know where we started? We started because we can't always agree about things like movies and entertainment and alcohol and school choices and clothing. That's where we started. We can't always agree on those things. And we end with the glory of God and hope nourished by the Holy Spirit. So let's put our convictions about those secondary things in their place. Reuben Alves said, hope is hearing the melody of the future. It's a good line. Hope is hearing the melody of the future. Faith is to dance to it. Let us be people who sing together the music of the age to come. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for the Lord Jesus. We are thankful to you that he, in obedience to you, came and accomplished all of your purposes and plans. And now here we are, this group of people. We're we're different from one another. We have different convictions from one another, and yet you have called us together. Lord, I pray that this great hope, that this uh, joy of of the glory of God being exalted through the Lord Jesus in our church, I I pray that that would drive us forward. 
that, that our different convictions uh, about these third and fourth order things, that, that they would not divide us, but that we would be united because we have this greater treasure to be, to be had in the Lord Jesus. Teach us to order our convictions, to order our values and our priorities. And we do pray that you would bring about us hope and joy and peace under the Lordship of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do that work in us for your glory, for our good, and for the increase of our effectiveness and speaking to those around us about the Lord Jesus. Do all these things in us, we pray, according to your great kindness in the Lord Jesus. We say these things together in his name, saying, Amen.